Good morning. Yes, he wears glasses. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Hey, a um, couple things before I get started. First and foremost, I need to apologize to the deacons again. Last Sunday, our communion Sundays, I consistently forget during my prep for communion to announce and talk about the deacon's offering. It happens every time. I keep saying sorry, but as I've told my children, you keep saying sorry, but nothing changes. So, <laughs> so I don't know what to say. Um, Except this, uh, the deacon's offering is a way in which we can give over and above our regular giving to help support the mercy ministries of UPC. And when we say mercy ministries, that is both internal for those of us in the church that are in, in a rough spot. It happens, and it doesn't happen just because we're not good with our money, okay? Life happens. It happens. Part of being a community if, if you look in the early chapters of Acts, has to do with the community helping one another, right? So that none has need. That's part of uh, the blessing of being part of the covenant community, right? It, it, literally, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's in the book of Acts. And it's also there and available for the deacons to do mercy ministry outside of the church. And so, the good news for me is that you don't have to wait Till the, till the first Sunday of the month to give to the deacon's offering. And so you can do that at any time. You can do that online. I'm just trying to make amends poorly, but I wanted to make sure that that's clear to everybody. Okay. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, turn it to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament, chapter 18. That's where we're at this morning. Um, especially this morning, I, oh, I, at some point I'm going to have to stop saying especially because it happens so often, but I do think it's good. Listen, if you're, not, if you're new to church or you're new to um, churches where, where the, the preaching that we do is primarily out of the Bible, and that sounds really weird for some of us, but it's just true. There's a lot of churches, you, you get the little verse that's said and then the sermon is, Lord knows what it's about. We, we specifically preach um, the Bible here, and so it's good to have it in front of you for a couple reasons. One is that, um, that you can tell, that, or hopefully you can tell, that what you're hearing is not just the ramblings of some uh, goofball up front, that it's actually rooted and grounded in God's Word, because my opinions don't matter. No, it doesn't help anyone. They don't even help me, so they're, they're not helpful. What you need and what I need are, is God's Word. And secondly, because it helps us, uh, to some degree, understand and learn how to read our Bibles, right? Because it doesn't just come naturally when you become a Christian, right? We, we have to learn and grow in how we read our Bibles, and, and part of it is seeing how we go through this on a Sunday morning, okay? We're in uh, Matthew 18 this morning. We're in our second Sunday, and the, the, the last of, uh, we're in the last two sermons on this series of reimagining the church, of what we can, what the church can be, and what we, we are praying for and hoping for UPC to be as we move forward. This is our second week on community, um, specifically this week looking at what it, what it looks like for, to have conflict, because that happens, right, in the church. And so um, how to do conflict and how to do that in a way that's actually going to be helpful and not hurtful, in fact, not, not uh, destructive, right? So if you have your place in Matthew 18, would you stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to be reading verses 15 down through verse 20. This is God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God is forever. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good to us, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have called us here into this place. Some of us, we're not even sure why we're here. Uh, But we're here. You've called us into worship. We've responded to that call with responding with the, the, the beauty that you've given us. And now, Lord, we, we need to hear from you. Because if you do not speak, we're lost. And so we ask that you would open our hearts to receive you and our eyes to see you and our ears to hear from you. Lord, let everything that is Christ and his work come to the forefront and let everything else fall away, including the one who speaks. For Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak, for we are listening. And we pray it in your name. Amen. Have a seat. Do you know um, why, this is a rhetorical question, by the way. Um, I say that in my, in my last church, we had this young man who, um, who had some needs, and he was, uh, he, every rhetorical question I asked, he answered every one of them. And I asked a lot of them, so at times it got awkward. But anyway, uh, are, do you know why that period after a wedding is called a honeymoon? Because originally, it wasn't named for that, the vacation, Right, the honeymoon wasn't the vacation. It was called a honeymoon because it was meant to kind of represent that sweet period of about a month before reality hits. <laughs> right? It's like that you get, you get a, even the ancients knew, you get about a month and then it all goes to pot, right? Um, you know, again, a month of sweetness. Uh, for my wife and I, it was a little less than that. We had a pretty good fight, though for the life of me, I can't remember what it was about. I'm sure she can, but I'm on stage now. So um, we, 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 had a pretty good, we had a pretty good fight on our honeymoon itself. Um, but listen, if this is true in marriage, even in the first few days of a marriage, where kind of the, the, all the feels are still there, right? Then shouldn't we expect it to be true of a larger group of people filled with a lot of people that we didn't choose to be around? Right? Shouldn't we expect that there's going to be conflict? That there are going to be times where you rub me the wrong way and Lord knows I'm going to rub you the wrong way. Where it's just, something's just not going to work out right. The conflict is inevitable when you get more than one broken person in a room together. But how is that to be done in church? Now, notice I didn't say, how has it been done in church? Because if I were to say that, that would open us up to many stories of terrible awfulness. Right? Some of you are familiar with that. Some of you have been victims of that. Some of you know how that works. What I mean how is, how is it to be done? How is it supposed to be done? And, and Jesus tells us, in fact, he guides us. And in doing so, he normalizes it. He normalizes it and helps us to manage our expectations of it, okay? So that's what we're looking at this morning. Um, we're going to look at, it, look at it in three ways. I know that's shocking to you, especially if you've been in a Presbyterian church a while. But um, we're going to look at the practice of confrontation. We're going to look at the presence of it, and then we're going to look at the power of it, okay? So let's start with the practice, and I want to talk about the context. Here's why I want to talk about the context. No one ever, like this passage is common, and there's a lot of churches, they talk about this passage, and it's connected to a certain phrase called church discipline. We're going to forget we heard that phrase for a minute and just move back to the passage, but what we never seem to talk about is where this passage is. If you have your Bible out, I want you to look at the section just above Matthew 18, verse 15. If you're using an ESV, it has a sub, it has a little non-inspired, not in the original text, a uh, little section note, right? It says, for, starting before verse 10, it says, the parable of the lost sheep. Oh, that's interesting. And then if you were to go down under this section that we just read, starting uh, in verse 21, if you were to, again, look at, maybe your Bible has a little section heading again. It says, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? See, here's the funny thing about this. Someone wrote this 
with intention in mind. If you're not familiar, this, this, uh, this gospel, what we call a gospel, is written by this guy named Matthew. Um, if you're a businessman, you probably would have loved Matthew because Matthew was probably pretty good at business. He was um, a tax collector, which in that day, obviously we have bad connotations to it. They had worse connotations to it. But the, the bottom line is the dude knew how to make money, and he did it. And he used the system, and he made a lot of money. But he was probably an outcast. He was probably very wealthy. And, and many people argue that when he's writing this letter, he was writing it primarily to a Jewish audience. It would have made the most sense to a Jewish audience. Now, here's the thing. He wrote this, and we have some assumptions about um, what happens when you, when you write a story, right? One of those assumptions is that the author, especially if they're writing about events that happened, that what they're doing is they are prioritizing chrono- chronology. In other words, they are... Um, they, they want to make sure that everything happened in the exact order in which they happened. And a lot of times in the Gospels, that is true. Because we can say, and then after this, and it goes on. And then there are other times where we have collections of, of teachings and sayings that, that don't necessarily have a marker on them. Now, they may have happened right in the same order in which we're reading it, like a normal story. Or it may have been, the author was like, let me pull together some things that I know Jesus said that all kind of go together at the same time. In either case, either it, what we're reading here happened because Jesus is saying them in this order and it happens in, uh, because Jesus thinks they go together, or they're happening because Matthew thinks they go together. In either case, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the unforgiving servant apparently have something to do with conflict in the church. That's interesting, isn't it? What that means is is that Jesus just gets done talking about how far he will go to seek after those that are wandering from the faith, those that find themselves in a ditch, those that aren't doing the things that that we would call following Jesus, that they're wandering away. Right after he talks about how far he will go, then he talks about what that will look like in the church. And then after it's done, and after we've talked about what it means to have conflict, then he tells a story about how that ends up with the question of, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Jesus' words are basically like every time. That's the context. This passage Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, that a lot of times are misused and misunderstood, that we read and we go, oh, this is so mean. And we have to understand that the, the context is a body of Jesus' teaching about what to do when people who share your profession, who share your faith, who, who are Christians, go off the rails. Now, of course, this has nothing to do with anyone in this room, right? So that's the good news. You can listen in. But this is the way this is supposed to work, okay? Now, let's look at the details. Let's look at the, de- the, the steps of the process. Look down, starting in verse 15. He says, if, you're, if your brother sins against you. I love this. In the original, that is a possibility. It could be saying if. The other real possibility, which I think is probably better, is when it says when, whenever. Sometimes you could be saying if ever, but more likely it's saying whenever, whenever. Uh, you know, if, as if it's a possibility. You know, we're not going to do that. Uh, no. Uh, whenever your brother sins against you. Now, note, it says sin. This is really important. And so if you've already checked out on me, check back in real quick. This is super important. It does not say offended. And it does not say whenever your brother hurts your feelings. Okay? Now, let let me be clear. This passage is talking about sin, and sin is a scriptural category. Okay? which means that it is defined by the Bible, not by my ego. I can be offended by lots of things. Lots of things. Okay? In our day, offense is a virtue. Right? It's, it's like being offended shows how much you care. That's not what this is talking about. You know, my feelings can be hurt, quite frankly, if you don't think I'm awesome. That's not the same as you sinning against me. That may just be reality. Maybe. 
Who knows, okay? And violating my preferences is not sin. That's called life, right? The only people who consistently demand and, and move away from relationships when their preferences are not met, we call narcissists. That's not the same, okay, as what's going on here. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a reason to talk with someone to try and work something out if they've hurt your feelings. Relational fractures happen. They happen all the time. Listen, and a lot of times it's, it's stuff we didn't even mean to do. Hurt, I, if, if I hurt your feelings, please come. We can talk. We'll try and make that work. But what we're talking about here, the steps that Jesus is talking about here have to do with sin, not having our feelings hurt. They may be the same, okay? Could be the same, but we'll get to how we discern that here in a minute, okay? So what this also means, because he says if your brother sins against you, is that the issue that Jesus is talking about is about a relationship with you, or between you and someone else, but it is also about a relationship between that person and Jesus. Right? The Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, the big list of here's, here's what to do, what not to do, that deals with our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Right? And, and Jesus says the, the greatest of the commandments, so to sum them up, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. And that sinning against our brothers and sisters, sinning against others is first and foremost a violation against the Lord. Even, you know, even, um, even David in Psalm 51, the, the, the great famous psalm of, of repentance, David, King David of David and Goliath fame, wrote after he had committed adultery with, uh, with his, one of his chief bodyguard's wives and then had his bodyguard killed. Even he said at that moment, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is unrighteous in your sight like it's not just about what he's done horizontally but it also impacts vertically okay so jesus says if your brother sin against you first and foremost go and tell him his fault between you and him alone this is an important point jesus seems pretty clear that when there is an issue between you and another person that step one the first the first step that issue needs to stay between you and that person until such a time as they aren't listening. Now, we don't like that, right? Now, of course, no one in this room struggles with gossip. So, I'm, listen, again, I'm not talking about that. What we do is we don't gossip. We ask for prayer. <laughs> right? Don't we? Talk to folks in our life group. We talk to our friends. Be like, please pray for me. Why? Well... So-and-so did this against me, and it was really bad, and blah, 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 blah. Can you believe they did that? I really need prayer, right? This is what we do. And I know, listen, I know what you're not meaning to do intentionally is build a coalition, right? I know you're probably not meaning to do that. You're probably doing it. One, there, there's times in which we're like, hey, I need some wisdom. I don't really know what to do about this. That, that's possible. That's certainly possible. There's another possibility where it's not necessarily that. It's that maybe you, you just want someone to affirm that you're right. Right? But more than likely, it's probably not a healthy thing. And Jesus is... He's, calling that out and he's saying you do it between you and you alone and this means and let me be very clear if someone has sinned against you you have two options Ooh, is it that binary rick apparently it is either you go and talk to them you talk to that person or we just keep our mouths closed Okay, all right, uh, that went over like a lead balloon. Here we go. All right, next thing. Jesus keeps talking, though. This is great. He says, he, he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is amazing. The goal of this conversation, this conflict, let me be clear, is not you being right. It's not that. The goal is winning your brother. 
Winning your friend, winning your fellow Christian, it is reconciliation and repentance. To win does not mean you win the argument. Okay, that is not the goal. It means to have restoration between you, between the person that sinned against you and you, and between the person that sinned against you and Jesus. You have won them. Okay? So step one in this thing, you go alone. Clear? This is, this is very, Jesus, this is as clear as we get from Jesus. Okay, this is really clear. Step two, you go with a couple others. So, listen, I know some of us have, had, have done this. We've gone to someone, we've talked to them, and it didn't go well, right? How many have had that, com- that, that, that happen? You talked to somebody, it didn't go well? That few. Okay, um, apparently I'm really bad at this. because Okay, so you go to someone, and it doesn't go well. Why try again? Have you thought about that? Because Jesus doesn't give us the option. He doesn't say if it's still stuck in your craw, go again. He says if he does not listen, keep going. Why? Well, let me suggest a couple reasons. One, because you love your friend and you want them to be restored to Jesus. I know. We get into this because it's about us, right? It's totally what we do. We get into this because like, I'm hurt. Something has gone wrong with me. And it's true. I do it too. Like, it's, it's like I've got to. And then, and then we, we talk with someone and they don't respond well. Or, or they, they literally just go like, I don't care. Or you don't understand. Or I'm being misunderstood. So we go back, but why? Because one, we love our friend and we want them to be restored, not just to us, but to Jesus. And why try again? The second reason is because the stakes are being raised. And here's what I mean by that. Keep reading. He says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here's what this does. You take, two or, you take a couple more people with you. Here's what this does. First and foremost, it allows for others to see if maybe, um, maybe you're not as clear on this as you thought you were. Right? I know. I know what we're thinking. I'm taking two or three with me, and I got my team, and we're going to come in, and we're going to wreak havoc. Or you take two or three with you, and they go, you know, Rick, now that you're saying it like this, and I'm hearing the other sign, I'm thinking you might be off base here. <gasps> I should have taken the other two people. But that's what we're talking about here, right? So first and foremost, it allows for others to see if maybe you're, under, you're overblowing this or your understanding is messed up. But the other side of this is he says, so that by, the, by the, the testimony of two or three witnesses, a charge may be established. In other words, it's going legal all of a sudden. And I know some of us are in this room thinking, and this is why I'm not a big fan of you Christians. Like, why does, I thought this was relational, and now everything got legal, and why is it that way? Well, let me tell you, it's actually a very good reason why it got that way, and it's this thing that we don't associate it with church, but we should, and it's called a covenant. See, a covenant is a a promise-bound relationship. We still call marriages the covenant of marriage, right? If you've been to a wedding recently, a lot of times they'll say that. Why? Because a marriage is more relational than a business transaction. There's love involved, right? But it's also more legal than a friendship. It's harder to get into and harder to get out of. You're my friend, I can just ghost you. I have a really hard time ghosting my wife. Okay? Really hard time. Uh, And vice versa, okay? So, the point is, is that we associate that with marriage. What we don't associate that with is church. But that's what this is. This is called the covenant community. It's a community bound by promises. Not just promises to each other, promises to Jesus. In fact, that's how God interacts with his people throughout all of time. It's through these promise-bound relationships. Which means that this is more formal in a sense. But it's also relational. Okay? 
So you go with these two. It either works or it doesn't. Works, again, you've won your brother. If it doesn't, step three, take it to the church. Now, when it says take it to the church, this means the elders. Why take it to the elders? This is a big question. Why would you, why, why are we, uh, why is it having to go so big? Because at this point, you've gone alone. The person has gone, yeah, yeah, go beat sand. And then, and then you've gone with two or three others, and they're like, I still don't care. Which means that what we are dealing with now is not just like, hey, there's a problem between me and this person. We're dealing with the fact that this person is unwilling when shown, not just like, I've been offended, but like, you're in sin. They've gone, I don't care. That's an issue of a lack of repentance. And that goes beyond just like, hey, me and my buddy can't go hang out anymore. Now it goes to, are you following Jesus are you, are you following Jesus? I mean, remember, repentance and faith are the signs of the Christian faith. So when we're, what we're dealing with here is the possibility that someone is showing that they aren't actually a Christian, which is why you bring the two or three witnesses, because that is a really big deal. So Jesus says, bring it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, or if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, here's where, here's where it gets uncomfortable, right? This gets all of us uncomfortable. Some of us, it gets uncomfortable because we've seen it done poorly. In the, fact, in, in the, in the sense that what, what this means is it has language attached to it, right? Excommunication, right? Which did not come from the John Wick movies, by the way. That's not, that's, the, that's church language, not mob, mobster language. Excommunication. Um, we, we get words like ostracizing, all of these things. And some of, some of you are thinking, like, again, you're thinking, see, this is, this is it. This is why I have issues with Christians. So let me just say two things to that. First and foremost, every community has boundaries that they enforce. Every community. I know we don't like to think about that, but listen, Like, if I, if I were to go to, I don't know, let me, let me, pick, let me pick out somebody, uh, some group. Uh, if I were to go to, um, try one that's not a hot-button topic so I don't get emails. Uh, just, you know, let's just think of it in, in terms of political parties. If I were to go to the, the, the Orange County Republicans and I say, you know what, I, uh, I want to be an Orange County Republican. They're like, great. And it's like, but here's my problem. Um, I'm a huge fan of Karl Marx. And, um, and, and I really love the graduated income tax, and, or even better, I w- I'm going to the Orange County Libertarians, and I'm saying these things. They would go, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't fly here. And we'd go, of course they would say that. You're clearly not a libertarian, right? If, 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 if that's where you're going, you're, you're clearly not that. There are other groups that, of which that works. So every community has boundaries, and they enforce them. Again, like our day of canceling just kind of proves this. Those boundaries are enforced, and they are enforced vigorously. But the second thing I would say about this is this. Jesus says, notice what he, what he doesn't say is, kick the bum out. He says, let them be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Let me ask you a question. Who did Jesus consistently get in trouble for eating with? Tax collectors, and by the way, Gentiles. This, what Jesus is telling people, is not cast them out from relationship with you. Jesus was consistently known for being in relationship with all the wrong people. What he is saying is to treat them, in in other words, in your mind, understand their position. They are not, they have proved themselves to not be of the faith. Instead, we are to consider them the way we would all of our other non-Christian friends and neighbors. With me? This is important. Jesus is not commanding dissociation. What he is commanding is saying, there's a boundary here. We need to enforce the boundary, but remember The church exists for the world. This isn't about cutting people off in relationship. 
It's about understanding the nature of the relationship you have with the person. Okay? The point is not whether you're present with them. It's, it's how to understand where they are at with Jesus. So there's your steps. Now comes the confusing part. Look down at verses 18 to 20 in this presence of this confrontation. So here's the other thing we need to understand. Again, in our day and age, when we read Scripture in little snippets and especially in little verses, these two, the eight, verses 18 through 20, have almost always been completely divorced from the, from the rest of the passage. Have they not? Like, when's the last time you heard that the whole thing about where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also, that that has to do with confrontation? Right? No, that's like, but, but I thought that's how many Christians you needed for a church service. Right? Let's just keep reading, though, right? All of this is connected. All of the binding, the asking, the gathering, all of this stuff is about conflict, and specifically the actions taken by the church. Look down at verse 18. He says, listen, uh, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. This is almost a direct quote, a repetition of what Jesus has already said to Peter in chapter 16. He already said something very similar to this. Okay, so there are two sides of the, the horse that we can fall off on when we're talking about what he's just said. He's just said that if they if you bring it to the church, if, if, they, if he doesn't even listen to the church, then you treat them like, in other words, the, there's, there's this ch- thing called church discipline, um, and in particular that one, like, you, you kind of remove from the fellowship or the communion of the church. And now he's saying this. This binding. And so when we have that decision, we can think one of two things. One side of the horse is, like, um, that's just the judgment of a bunch of fallible dudes who, um, you know, we just go, eh, whatever. They don't know what they're talking about anyway. No impact. The other side of the horse you fall off on is basically whatever they say is infallible and it's going to kind of be logged in the holy writ. Jesus is kind of saying something a little different right? He says, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Whatever, not whoever. This is important. The binding that he's talking about is the, is the judgment. It's the decision. It's not the person. It's an authoritative judgment, okay? In other words, the binding is about a declaration that someone, as it regards the church, is not showing signs of having faith, right? They're not showing signs of having faith, because they're not repenting. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. And Jesus' statement is basically saying that this judgment is not an empty judgment. It's not just something we go, yeah, whatever. I don't like those guys anyway. It means something. What it also doesn't mean, though, is that this decision is infallible. In other words, another group of elders may find that it was in error, but Jesus' point here is that the judgment by the church means something. It isn't a throwaway thing that we don't have to pay attention to. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about me and my relationship with Jesus. Like, no, 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 no. No. Christian life is very personal, but it's, but it's not private. It's not private. That is the whole point. And as he continues down, in, Jesus' point is saying, I am present right there in that judgment. And here's, here's why I think this matters. This is why, this, state, this, this verse right here is why this action should never be taken lightly. Right? This should never be taken lightly. It does happen. It needs to happen. But I can tell you this. I've been doing, I've been doing ministry for about 20 years now. Uh, and what the, the end product, the end thing that Jesus talks about, the end of these steps, if this is still going on, here's what you do. Maybe five times in 20 years have I seen that happen, right? I'm not saying other things up to that haven't happened. I'm saying that end, that end goal where people have just gone, yeah, I'm done. I don't care, all right? It needs to happen. It does happen. It needs to happen, but it should happen through tears, not through rage, okay? So that's the binding. Then the asking, uh, then he says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, any, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, this is not separate. The statement that he is making about prayer is about the actions and the decisions that the church is making here. Okay? 
We need to be clear on that. And when the two or three are gathered, it's not a general teaching about how many believers it takes to have a worship service. This is about whether Jesus is present in the decisions being made by the leaders of his church. In both, the entire point is the presence of Jesus in the judgments of the elders of the church. Okay? There are two reasons for this. Two reasons for this. And this is kind of a side note, so I'll come over here to the side. Two reasons for this. First and foremost, the only authority the elders of your church have is a declarative authority. Here's what I mean. If it is not in this book, we have no authority to tell you it. In our tradition, we would call that binding of the conscience. It's a really fancy phrase for just like making you do what I want you to do. Making you worship the way I want you to worship. Making you you know, and, and holding, you, holding you to that, using the power of the church to discipline you and get you if you don't do what I want you to do. We have no power to do that. Let me say it again. The elders have no power to do that. The only authority we have is declaring to you what King Jesus has said. And we can hold you accountable to that just like we are held accountable to that because we are all under his authority. So if Jesus is present, it's because the, the authority we have is declared. The second is because your elders, and I will keep saying this and keep saying this and keep saying this, Presbyterianism is a representative form of government, but it is not the kind of representation that you probably think. The elders represent Jesus in these events, not a constituency. Okay, So Jesus is saying, I'm there, I'm in the midst of that. Okay, now getting a little long, so let me, let, me talk, let me kind of bring this into the power of it and first of why we need it. I want, to, I want to take a few minutes to talk about two things. First, why we need what Jesus is talking about here and, and then how it works. First, why we need it. Let me be clear. There are very few people, and if you're one of these people, you should come talk to me because you may need help. There are very few people who get warm fuzzies when they read this passage, okay? Again, if you get a warm fuzzy from reading this passage, come talk to me. There may be something we need to work through. Um, the fact, however, the fact that Jesus himself is saying this, like Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, robe and Birkenstocks, right? The fact that Jesus is saying this, it seems out of place. And if it seems out of place, that means we need to pay special attention to it. Because, I mean, aren't we just supposed to love people and treat them with grace, which of course means never confronting them on anything? Isn't that the way Christian community is supposed to work? See, there, there are two assumptions that govern Jesus' insistence on this practice. And let's not, let's not uh, dally around this. Jesus insists on this. This is not optional to his people. He says, this is, when this happens, here's what you do, right? So there are two assumptions that, he, that are governing this, and they're key. And I would argue most of us don't share them with Jesus. Here's the first one. Ready? Sin is destructive. Again, not offense. Sin. Sin is destructive. And, and when I say that, some of us start squirming a little because we associate talk with sin with rather large, uh, red-faced dudes frothing at the mouth and pounding on a pulpit. Again, if Jesus uses the word, then we probably need to pay attention. Because the story of the Bible is that God created the world to all fit together in this thing we call shalom, where all these relationships are perfectly lined up together. We've talked about that before. Shalom is relational. It's our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and even creation. We were designed to be dependent creatures, dependent on God, which means that if we've broken that relationship, which we'll get to in a second, that we will get what we need in our dependence from something or someone. We have to get those things from somewhere, and we will use others to do so, and that is what sin is. It is rejecting God and using others to get what only he can give us. I need value, so I need to make sure that you love me, right? I need worth, I need an identity, I need, I need um, safety, and so I'm gonna, I need a status, I need satisfaction, and I will use you because i got to take care of myself, right? That's what, that's what sin is, and it's destructive because sin breaks these relationships as they were meant to be, including in the one who is doing the sinning. 
It's not just destructive for the the victims of it. It's destructive for the person that's doing it. Even the person who's doing the harm is being harmed by their own actions. We're not made for that. Okay, so sin is destructive, which means it's serious. So that's the assumption. Are we okay with letting other people just destroy themselves and others? We good with that? So that's the first assumption. Sin is destructive. Second assumption. We still sin. Look, I know if I know if you're if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you've never actually heard a Christian say that, but we do, and of course we do. Sometimes we know we're doing it. And sometimes frankly we don't. Sometimes we don't. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But until Jesus returns and gets rid of sin fully and finally, which is something that we call theologically glorification, until that time when he comes and does that, we will struggle with doing what we know is wrong. So those are the assumptions. Sin is destructive and we still do it. But if you're a Christian, sure it's destructive. And sure you'll still do it. But you know you do it, right? I mean, God will convict you, right? We need to return to the story. Okay? When we broke relationship with God, something in us changed. It's not just that we became guilty, we did. We also became what the Bible calls corrupt. Sometimes it talks about it in this term called the flesh. It's this, this bent towards independence, not wanting to trust God for things, instead wanting to do it our own way, whether we do that morally or immorally. We all do it. Our motivations, our hearts are bent away from God. And that is why Jesus came, because we can't, we cannot change that in us. Jesus came to substitute himself for us, that his life would become ours, his perfect, unbroken life substituted for ours and his death for sin substituted for us as well so that our sin is dealt with. But here's the thing. Even if you've placed your faith in Jesus this morning, you are still in process. You are not a finished product. Which means, yes, you have this new nature, the way the the Bible talks about it, this new nature that, that wants to love God and wants to love others. But then there's this other thing, like fighting on the inside. That kind of, those overriding assumptions kind of still stay. That, that I'm not, that I, I need to look out for myself. That God's not out for my good. That I, I need to, you know what, like I need somebody else to think I'm awesome all the time. Because that helps me. And that means there are at least three reasons why we need what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, Reason number one, self-deception. We are the kings and queens of lying to ourselves. We are great at this. We love to believe that we are in control, that what we've done, even if, we've, if it's been bad, it's like, but it wasn't that bad. Like, yeah, I know, I know what I did was, was hurtful, but it wasn't as bad as what they did. In the grand scheme of things, children are dying. Who cares about what I, you know, we love that. Or that no one really notices what we did. We need people to speak normalcy to us, right? So reason number one, we deceive ourselves. Reason number two, blind spots. Sometimes we are sinning and we don't even realize it. Do you realize that the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? I know a lot of you've heard about this. If you've been Christian for a while, you've probably heard about this. Do you realize the entire point of that day is to seek forgiveness for the things you did not even know you did? It's not the one day of the year where you get atonement. Jews had sacrifices for that all the time. It's the one day of the year where you get atonement for all the things you didn't realize you were supposed to get atonement for. Because you and I do this constantly. We don't even know it. We don't even realize it. Like I've had people come in and talk to me and take, you know, sit down with me and be like, Rick, you realize when you do this, this is what happens. I'm like, oh my Lord, no. What do you mean? I thought I was doing this. You're like, yeah, doesn't come off that way. Oh, okay, well, I need to repent of that. Like, blind spots, we have them. We need someone else to help us see what we can't see. And last thing, being stuck. You know what I mean, don't you? Some of us in here are stuck this morning. We're stuck. We know what we're doing is wrong. We've tried over and over to stop it, but we can't. Maybe it's an addiction, right? Maybe it's a harmful relational pattern. 
but it just keeps happening. And for whatever reason, we tell ourselves the next day it'll be different today until it's not. We need someone else to come in and go, I see you. I see what's going on. This needs to change, and I'm, I'm going to walk with you through it. We need someone to come to us and say, I see you, and you're not alone. Right? All right. That was all a lot, but we're not done. Okay? Last thing, how it works. Okay, so let, me, let me be honest with you. In a healthy church, this kind of thing happens all the time. Not the last step. <laughs> not the last step. But this kind of thing happens all the time. Most of the time, this process is handled over a cup of coffee. Right? It's handled over a cup of coffee, and it's just mundane. Most quote-unquote church discipline is handled over a latte or a beer. Like, it is super easy. It's just, we're just going to go hang out, and I'm going to be like, hey, man, you realize when you do this, it's this, and you're like, oh, man, I blew it. Or, yeah, you're right, I was hoping no one would notice. And then uh, I need to seek forgiveness, and, and, and we move on. Matter of fact, like, the elders hear about it long after the fact. They're like, oh, that happened. Okay, good, that's good. But there's no detailed script to use on how this can work. So let me give you some practical steps. This is some practical steps. I'm just going to give you just a few, so don't panic, okay? One, first step, get clarity. Is this actually sin? Again, I, I, listen, this day and age, it's hard to tell. <laughs> it's hard to tell because for us, like, just the, the feeling of offense is enough to get us, like, this must be sin. Is this sin? Just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's sin, right? If you don't like it, it's a totally different conversation. It doesn't mean the conversation doesn't happen. It means it's a totally different conversation. That conversation is based on curiosity to understand why someone does what they do. It's different. So first, spend time in Scripture and in prayer to determine whether this is sin. Two, one is get clarity. The second is get some compassion. Mm. This is the hard one but I think it's the most important. Listen, evil does exist. Evil people do exist. I've met some. But most people are just everyday sinners who don't wake up in the morning thinking, I wonder who I can harm today. I've met some people that think that. That's scary. They do exist. But that's not everybody. You address an everyday sinner very differently than you do an evil person. And as Christians with other Christians, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, which is about living in the church, not about marriage, that whole passage on love is that love is supposed to hope all things, trust all things. In other words, it gives the benefit of the doubt. So let's... Let's get some compassion as we engage with someone else. So three, and uh, listen, I'm, this is, I'm assuming that this has gone on with the first two because it's hard to get clarity and it's hard to get compassion without this one. This is prayer, okay? Listen to me. You cannot bring your friend, your spouse, your child, your parent, whatever, to repentance. Let me say that again. You can't even bring you to repentance. Only the Holy Spirit does that. Change is not in your hands. You've got to repent of that God complex right now. It is not in your hands. It is in God's hands. And the Spirit of God does work in these things, but the Spirit of God is also very open to letting you handle this yourself and see how far it gets you. So pray. Four, address things as vulnerably as you can. And I know, listen, if you've been the one sinned against, this can be very, very difficult. Uh, but if you've been sinned against, share the impact of the behaviors. Not just like, you were wrong, but here's what that did to me. If you've watched it, if you've watched that behavior on someone else, share the impact of how that impacted you when you watched it. Sin is relational, not just moral, right? So let confrontation be relational too. Five, remember the gospel. Like sometimes we need to get it just not just what was done, but why. Change happens when we let the free grace and perfect work of Jesus penetrate those why areas and not just the what. Six, leave space for repentance. In other words, um, you know, like it may not come. It may not. 
But a lot of times it will. Most of the time it will. And when it does, remember that God's forgiveness is not conditioned on your perfect behavior afterwards. Repentance is a process. Give it time. Be patient. And lastly, be willing to rejoice. Do you understand? It is always a miracle when repentance happens. You know that, right? Every little act of repentance is a miracle from the Holy Spirit of God. Because that is not natural. Everything in me says, "Mm, I'm going to extend a finger to you and it's not my pointer finger. That's what every natural instinct in me says. And I know, listen, I'm I'm not that much different from you. A little worse, but not that much. Every natural instinct in us says, go away. Let me be. Just leave me alone and let me be me. Every little piece of repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The reason this seems so scary for so many of us is that, if I'm being honest with you, most of us have very little experience of the process of relational fracture and then restoration. We have plenty of experience of fracture, but most of us have learned how to deal with that by ignoring it, pretending it didn't happen, or by giving it enough time that we just all kind of move on and and come to detente, right? We fear the loss of relationship if we confront, we fear being exposed, we fear being belittled, we fear being wrong, but the gospel frees us, friends. It frees us to embody this kind of community because if Jesus has provided everything for us, then we can risk anything for the sake of others, and that's what we do. Don't be fooled. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Risking anything for the sake of these people to win your brother. Loving someone enough that you risk your own comfort to see their brokenness healed. Would you pray with me? Jesus, may this be true in our church. I I do have a fear, Lord. I'm just going to name it right now. I have a fear that in the next week, Everyone's going to be having conversations with everyone, and it's going to be like history books are being opened, and the roles are being called, and, and so, Lord, I pray first and foremost for wisdom. There are many things that we can bear with. One-offs, things that happened, we can bear with them. There are some things, Lord, though, that show patterns that we need to confront, not just because we were harmed, but because we need our brother or sister to to repent and and to be reconciled to you. So we ask that you would normalize this, that we would love each other enough to be in one another's lives, to be willing to speak hard truths, to be willing to love and to risk. Lord, we can't do this on our own. So we ask that you would work in our hearts for that and we ask that as we do it that you would provide the gift of repentance and that we would rejoice in the miracle every time it's given. And we ask that you do it, Lord, to make your name famous in East Orlando because there's no other explanation for people that can do this in a way that is loving and and, uh, restorative. There's no other explanation than that the, the living God is amongst us. And so do this to make yourself famous and for our good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.